0: I'm Matt Booker, and I'm Dave Laird,
1: and I'm Corey Baldoff. Prepare to look again, often, when visiting The Great Concavity. Uh
0: So welcome, everybody, to the fourth episode of The Great Concavity. As you heard, we have a guest this week, Corey Baldoff. Corey, who are you? Tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your background and what you do.
1: Let's see. All right. Uh, I think of myself first as an artist. I'm also a teacher and a new uh, Wallace amateur, I'll call it.
0: <laughs> well, welcome to the, welcome to the fold. Um, Matt's a grizzled veteran, so he'll, he'll walk you through the process.
2: Well, Corey and I met, I should say, this summer at the second annual David Foster Wallace conference, and we were on the same panel. So I feel like Corey is a friend of mine that I met, like many of my friends, originally on the internet.
0: Specifically Twitter, you said?
2: Specifically on Twitter. And Corey and I, with Josh Royland, kind of organized our panel over Twitter direct messages and Gmail. And then when we got to hang out in Illinois, it was really awesome. It was like meeting someone you feel like you've already met. Oh, that's
0: cool. Uh, my panel, I didn't, I didn't know the people that were on it at all until we were just ready to present. But we ended up hanging out quite a bit over the weekend. It was great. Nice. So
2: I definitely want to ask Corey what that experience was like. And then we want to ask you about you know, what you talked about there, which was your Infinite Jest project.
1: Well, the experience was amazing. And when we met, I think it was like in this lobby hallway. Um, and I guess maybe, maybe I'll start by saying I had to answer this questionnaire later in the summer. And I was asked to list spiritual experiences. <laughs> and the first... Wow.
0: Was this like part of the conference no. questionnaire going into it, or is it totally, totally unrelated? unrelated.
1: Like I came back to Detroit. Okay. It's like a month later. <laughs> and the first and only thing I could think of was the conference. Oh wow. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. As spiritual experience. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. It was actually pretty coincidental. Why don't you tell her tell everyone, Corey, what happened there? Because you had this kind of pre-planned project. I didn't know about the colored cards the playing oh, cards
1: oh yeah yeah so i was talking to matt at his table in the like the book
0: room the book hall yeah yeah yeah
1: book hall i like that better yeah. the book hall um <laughs> i was in the book hall with matt booker and <laughs> and he decides to give me this card which is his card with the, like
2: uh think it's a king of clubs
1: yeah, yeah. king of clubs thanks. like the
2: pale king Governor? yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> and so I knew that I, I it was synchronicity, and I knew it made sense because because of the Pale King. But I just couldn't believe that he was handing me this card, and then I was planning to hand out a deck of these color cards at our talk. So that was a moment that I I felt pretty welcomed. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's yeah. a good start. I was pure synchronicity because I like I say we had not discussed it before at all. I didn't know Corey was going to do this thing with playing cards, and then. You know, I thought it was also kind of strange that the Pale King cover design, which was done by Karen Green, had this actual king on it, and it was a playing card because it really has kind of nothing to do with the book. And she weaves in these little bits of mm-hmm. what was apparently his actual tax returns. Oh, but, oh really? Yeah, cool. but but when we had printed those cards in 2011 as part of the release of the Pale King, that was a. a program at the ransom center but we have thousands of them left over so oh. i'm i'm always giving them out as bookmarks like i still have probably like 500 of these things and i can't give them away enough so <laughs> like if you want one like email me and i will send you one but the, i gave i gave them to everyone at the conference because i was like hey free bookmark free bookmark oh, cool. and, and Corey was like huh don't <laughs> <say."> <laughs> yeah yeah i'm like
1: what's the deeper meaning here?
2: <laughs> so so Corey, in your talk, you talked a lot about community and then you gave out these cards and they were all like each card had a different color. Is that correct?
1: Yes. They were, so I was curious to see if people would just take one card from the top or the bottom, or if they would select a color. Um, and when I got the cards back, People had left all the pinks and all the yellows, um, but everything else was taken—greens, blues, purples. And my hope was that people would photograph the cards in their home environment, so something that would link our experience in normal Illinois back to where everyone stays.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many? How many people did you get doing that, Corey? I I sent I tweeted a, a picture of. Mine in my living room with my bookshelf in the background. Some Wallace paraphernalia on the table.
1: Yeah, Dave, I remember yours. And Matt, I think you told me about yours. I'm (laughs) trying to think if I ever actually saw it.
2: Yeah, I don't remember where I did, but I I keep it in my office on my wall. So I have it there to look at.
1: Totally. And then I want to say maybe at least 10 people sent me photos, which was pretty pretty great. I, I wasn't sure that, that anyone would, but uh, people
0: followed through. So that was nice. That's awesome. So Corey, you did you did a, a color project with the book Infinite Jest. And so for people who may not have seen that online, uh, there's been tons of amazing pictures. Uh, if you just Google Infinite Jest color, you're, you're going to see it on Google image right away. What um, tell us a bit about the background to that project. What maybe inspired it? What your talk was about at the conference and how you sort of uh presented that to the community
1: all right good good directing so the the color cards went along with the content of my talk and the way that i started reading infinite jest i began reading it because two of my friends kept saying that i should and um
0: <laughs> galvanized <laughs> that, you into it
1: yeah 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 and <laughs> They're both super well-read, and it's like if either of them, uh, one woman, her name's Amanda Thatch, and then another woman, uh, Rosie Sharp, they're so well-read that, like, if they're telling me to read something, it, you know, it's I, I'm preventing myself from reading terrible things by reading their suggestions. So, so I thought I should read the book, but I couldn't get into it. And so I set it to the side and read Blind Assassin by Margaret Atwood. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the book, there are so many references to color that it made me think back to Infinite Jest. And I thought, wait a minute, Wallace used so many references to color, like just in the first 75 pages or so. Mm. And what if I try keeping track of every reference to color as a way to keep me focused Hmm. and so that's how i started using these color tabs i finished margaret atwood's book went back to infinite jest and i would always have this book of color tabs with me and as a color was referenced i would put a small tab in the margins um there's I over 2,400 references to color in Infinite Jest. Hmm. So by the end, uh, the whole side of the book was just covered with these flags. Wow. And uh, I think it was probably maybe around page 250 or so that I realized I didn't need to use the tabs, but it had turned into an obsession or an art project. Yeah. And so I continued uh, using them. Then I read the book again,
0: mm-hmm. and now
1: I'm reading it for the third time.
0: So oh, wow. Uh, you've I'm surpassed try- me.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm trying to make this, like, compulsive stack.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you have you added tabs to three copies of *Infinite Jest? Is that –
1: Yes? Yeah, so, that's,
0: I think, what was at the conference, right?
1: So the, I had two at the conference. Two the, at the conference. Those right now are in an exhibition, which is – I was super excited about that. And then I have the third book here with that i'm um, like at in the 400s right now
0: mm-hmm. so are you manually repeating the process each time you read it or are you just like for the second one did you just add all the same tabs that you found in the first reading
1: it's so wild that's that comes up a lot yeah. i'm rereading it so it's this ritual that it's like it would be impossible for me to just sit there and mechanically put in the tabs like look okay somewhere halfway down the page there's a blue reference do that I so I'm actually rereading it and I think um I think it's teaching me a lot about writing uh I take different types of notes each time I read it I'm I call myself a a mud writer I write really slowly um (laughs) and, and so uh yeah, I, I think as I read it, I take on the stories in different ways, and I also uh, really get a sense for what it means to write.
2: I've got to say, I think that Corey is a really close reader, and I'm basing this just off of my experience of watching you at the conference go to other panels and take an incredible amount of notes. <laughs> and- and also, like you just seemed very serious about like getting down what people were saying and paying attention and like paying attention to that text. I mean, I've read Infinite Jest a couple times. It would never would have occurred to me to pay attention to color as a theme or a motif. Yeah. So, I mean, that to me, it strikes you as like you have to be a very close reader. And, you know, I, my question for you, Corey, is like, what were some of the surprising things you learned about? colors from reading that I mean what was a common color was there something that really stood out to you
1: it was interesting that my white color tabs kept running out first so I kept having to buy books Mm. because he uses the color white so often um black is second Mm. uh and red and blue forget which one is third and fourth but those are the four colors that he uses the most um I think i read somewhere on a blog like someone thought that blue was the only color he referenced in the book um (laughs) uh, and so wait
2: not true (laughs) Not,
1: not true um i i have a little excerpt here um where what i started doing is i was recording um the color and the subject that the color is describing would you guys mind if i just read a little excerpt
2: please no go for it
1: all right So this is starting on page 651. His swollen black eyes and REM's non sequiturs. Black sail, black sail, green says, yellow Vespa. The PM was moving fast from a chilly noon cloud cover into blue autumn glory. Fuchsia ski cap, green windscreens, black as ink, green sedan, gray and red, so bright, their colors. Sometimes it's hard to believe the sun's the same sun over all different parts of the planet. The color, yellow ball.
2: Oh, that's great. I remember that line about the sun, but I didn't remem- remember a lot of those other colors, just fast and furious like that. Yeah, that just shotgun blast.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Like I, I actually wanted to print it out because I was keeping track of these uh, nouns and colors in an email. And I think it takes like a whole ream of paper to print it <laughs>
2: <laughs> to print the email. Oh, yeah oh yeah
1: um, which wow. is great because someone read about my project and they just like ah they got so pissed that I was recording the colors and they're like, why? like <laughs> this is why are you doing that? What about all the curves? like what about all the reference to parabolas and at which uh-huh. it makes me think they need to reference those things because that would be amazing. Um, but it's just crazy how it becomes this extremely long poem that actually reminds me of a project that is on Twitter. And you guys are going to have to help me with the name because I'm drawing a blank. But she's um, erasing out parts of the text and leaving a poem.
2: Oh, yeah. Erasing Infinite, Ginny Baker.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, in a way, there's some relationship. Like I, I sometimes fantasize about us doing a show together. I've no, I've never told her that, but. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, she was at the first conference, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, Ginny, She's she's a really interesting person, and she was at the first David Foster Wallace conference talking about that project as well. So. Oh, neat. And she does a, a thing called the Found Poetry Review. And that's kind of like what you're describing, like this long list of colors. you describing it as a very long poem. That's like a found poem. So that's right up her alley. And
1: So I totally submitted some. Found poems? <laughs> like, yeah. <no. laughs> and then she tweeted something that I was like, I hope she's not referencing me directly, referring to my... but, but she was like ranting about the things she was getting and saying like, I'm just getting these long lists. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oops. <laughs> so I, I haven't won her over yet.
2: <laughs> oh God. Well, I actually had one published in that David Foster Wallace issue and mine was um, David Foster Wallace book titles translated into foreign languages and roughly translated back into English. What? So they were there was like girl with strange hair products uh-huh. and like you know the blank king and like it, it was a long list of book titles but I thought they were humorous so I submitted <laughs> them.
1: Wait, how can we can we look at it online?
2: I I think it's the found poetry review David Foster Wallace that will come up. Okay. So. We'll we'll put a link to it in the show notes or something, hey?
1: Nice.
2: Yeah, we'll put a link to it. It's it's humorous. Um that That's interesting, though, that so many people have had kind of similar ideas, but yet each person sort of makes it their own, you know, of using this. I th- do you think it's because it's such a long book that it seems like an appealing text to mess with? <laughs> There's a lot to decode there. Yeah.
1: Well, it's surprising because I can think of a lot of other books that are equally as long that people don't do this with. So I... It's almost like he creates room for people with so many different um, obsessions to find something. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't know if it's the length of it or that there's so many threads you can follow. Like you can pick up on one thread and follow it through and it's like endlessly satiating because... When, you know, once you see that he references curves once, then you can pick it up again and again. It's like this moment where you're like, "Yeah, he gets me." Like he's talking about curves again.
2: So
0: into curves.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, when I first read it, I was really into the moons, and the, you know, I thought the little circles that were at the beginning of chapter heads were like moons, yeah. and so I was like religiously tracking anything. <laughs> Related to the moon and even the cover of the book with the sky, you know, sometimes you can see the moon in the daylight and I was really tracking this moon stuff. And then somewhere around like 2001, I got a a PDF of the book and I could just search through it and be like moon, 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 moon. moon. Oh, oh, yeah. And then I was like, man, it's not as interesting. Like it was actually really hard work to do what you're doing, which is like just reading it by hand with like with a pencil. I mean, it took me months to just track down all these moons. And then, like, I had a PDF and it was like, meh, fun's over.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like, you see some kind of rhythm, but you're not having that moment of seeking or searching.
0: Right. And the payoff of finding something yourself and getting that kind of, like, immediate endorphin rush. Yeah. I found another one, yeah.
2: (laughs) And then I did the same thing with masks. Like, I was just like, okay, I can take any theme now and just, you know, look for keywords and search terms and stuff. And it was like, that's a different sort of... And it's kind of a microcosm of what a lot of book art has become, you know, where it is really less work intensive or less creative. But you can do other things with that, you know, with electronic text.
1: That's true. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I could read Infinite Jest uh, in a PDF. Maybe I I could. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, because part of the experience of reading this book is that you have to lug around this brick with you. And it's kind of embarrassing.
2: <laughs> well, but you don't I mean you do, and I think Wallace would definitely say you do, right, but I mean, my friend Chris, he read it on his phone, yeah, and I definitely know people who have read it on Kindle and on iPad,
0: yeah, I read it on iPad my second time reading it because I was doing thesis research, so I was highlighting stuff and using the search functionality is helpful in there, uh but the first time I read it, I read the the physical copy, and it's a, yeah, it was a very different experience
1: didn't someone even bring up at the conference? that the book is often compared to being wallace's body have you guys Whoa. heard about this mm.
0: that's kind of morbid. Yeah. i didn't hear yeah that. like and then but that's, that's really intriguing keep going <laughs> and
1: then you're like so you're like holding him and like leafing through him and like scanning the pages of him you know like yeah um no. his
0: brain his brain would be the closest analog i could think of you know that you like you're carrying around part of his mind with you which I feel like for me reading Wallace's writing, you get a glimpse into his psyche more than with other authors that I've read or more more so with any other author that I've read. I feel like by the end of Infinite Jest, I kind of know this writer a little bit
2: personally, which is kind of a strange phenomenon. Mm
1: hmm. For sure.
2: See, I thought I thought you were going the direction of like, well, it's supposed to be a tennis match because you know the end notes are in the back and you're going back and forth <laughs> and it's backing. and I've definitely heard that from going back, you know, 15 years. But carrying around his body, I don't really buy it. I mean that to me, that maybe I'm just not maybe I'm not enough of an academic, but to me that's like no.
1: I guess I guess it depends how sexy you want reading to be, maybe. <laughs>
2: Uh, I I don't even know about that.
1: I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, the context that it was brought up in the question and answer during our talk, it's it seemed like it was definitely um, making like a very intimate, almost sexual reference, like the the process of holding the book. But I I don't know. I have to think that maybe I took a note about who said it. Um,
2: well, I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. <laughs> you you should name names, Corey. <laughs> she could
1: if only i but. could remember
2: <laughs> so in those days since the conference though and i january of this year you had a profile of your project in Hyperallergic, which was awesome oh man and then yeah. and then in the year in the month since then the the book itself your your copy of infinite Jest, has been used on the cover of claire hayes brady's book on david foster wallace can can you tell us about mm-hmm. those two experiences of Hyperallergic and the book cover
1: Oh, sure. Um, I was pretty excited that the hyper allergic uh, article happened and it was fun talking with um, Sarah Rose Sharp about the project. And that was actually one way that I started getting to know more people on Twitter. Um, People would read the article and then react to it And so it was this like hyper speed um, introduction system uh, that I felt um, really appreciative of to just just to get to hear so many people's um, reactions or closeness to the book. And even their criticism I think pointed out how adamant people are about their opinions of of the book. Um, Mm. And it got me really thinking about what what I was doing with the project, like how much of it can be called an art project and how much of it was a a focusing device, and then how much of it turned into something that could be considered compulsive or something that distracts me from being part of the world. (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) Like in a form
2: of escapism or something.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
2: But you, I mean, that gave you a big audience, like you got a lot of reaction to that because it was shared pretty widely.
1: Yeah, I think that's something that is crazy to me. I I get it, but I I didn't understand that um, linking to a book would link me to so many people. Like I sort of thought of the book as something like, my life's crazy, I just need to hide in my room with my space heater and read this book. (laughs) Um, And really, I it became a very social thing. Um, So that still baffles me. I I can't fully understand it. But I guess I guess what I could say is that when you realize you're having a rough time and you actively do something to calm yourself down, which is what I was doing, uh, you might actually find an answer or um, more life. So I think that that would be what started the conversations I don't know if I don't know if I'm being clear but does that make sense
0: so like something very solitary turned into
2: something very communal Is that is that kind of what your experience was
1: yeah yeah
2: well you know it's funny you say that because I have this experience where I was corresponding with someone I met online and we were talking about Wallace's belief in literature makes you feel less alone and I say you know I kind of don't agree with that, or I've never felt that way, and that I felt like what if I'm alone and I'm reading a book, I'm still acutely aware of being alone and reading the book. Like even though, however engaged you are, or however entertaining it is, to me it doesn't really replace like human yeah. interaction or human like relationships with a book, and and yet step back and realize the irony of that. I'm telling this to someone that I met online through talking about a book. (laughs) So so actually I'm agreeing with what you're saying. Like here we are like talking and we met really through literature. So in a way, like it wasn't the story itself that made me feel less alone. Mm -hmm. Although
0: the imaginative access to other selves,
2: it actually just ended up pushing me further into a sense of community with people who had had similar experiences, which is maybe, you know, maybe I was just too daft to even get the original point. But (laughs) I I think it's really interesting because Corey, that was kind of the point of your talk at the conference was a lot about literary community and Twitter.
1: Yeah. And I, and I actually think I, I'm, I sort of feel like uh, I got this secret backstage pass because um, I'm going back to the idea of feeling like an amateur. When I went to the conference, I thought like, wow, I am, I am so underprepared to be here. Like, how is this going to go? And, and at what point are people going to like get, test me? You know?" <laughs> and, and it really wasn't like that at, at all. And so, um, I think, yeah, I think part of it might also be the people that read his writing um there's something that it is more welcoming i think than when i when i think of both the what i know of the world of writers and what i know of the world of artists there can be like an exclusive quality Hmm. there and i i didn't feel that way when i was at the conference or in the conversations i've had online with people
0: Mm, that's cool. Yeah, I think there's kind of an interesting paradox here specifically with the Wallace crowd, because for one, I think Wallace is, you know, he's like pretty, he's obviously a pretty smart guy. And so his books tend to be challenging and you have to work for uh, work for meaning and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so in that sense, you could see there being like a, a snobbishness sort of associated with it, with it, you know, that like mm-hmm. only these certain people can read this book and be smart enough or whatever to get it. Um, but then also, like so much of what Wallace talks about in interviews is about empathy and with about uh, authenticity and, and being a genuine empathic person. And so when you kind of blend those two things together with the Wallace community, you get you get a smart crowd. but You also get a crowd that's understanding and, and probably not too judgmental. And that, and that's sort of what I experienced too. Also feel like going there to this conference and feeling like an amateur. You know, it was my first conference presentation ever. And the only the second conference I'd ever attended. And I was just pretty petrified, you know, to deliver this thing.
1: Was there a point where you realized, oh, no, I'm, I'm going to be OK here?
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it helps for me that uh, I'd gone to the conference in September of 2014 in Paris and met a few people there that also were at this conference. So right when I walked in, Mike Miley and Dave Herring were there. And so immediately it was like. People that I know and have hung out with, and so that was really reassuring. And then they showed up to my talk, and then it was like, okay, I think I'll, I think I can do this.
1: <laughs> oh man, that's so great! And and uh, they they both were very welcoming to me as well. And yeah. Mike actually, right after uh, Matt gave me the Pale King card, Mike comes up to me and like freely offers up, like, oh hey, you know, one of my students, she diagrams all her sentences in rainbow colors and everyone was making fun of her and so i told her about your project and i was like oh I, oh thanks for telling me that i'm gonna be okay
0: oh that's
2: cool <laughs> yeah, that's yeah
0: awesome.
2: the other thing i wanted to talk to you about um and this is kind of a transition but talking about next february is also the 20th anniversary of infinite jest and they're having a contest mm-hmm. to redesign the cover of infinite jest and Corey and I have talked about this somewhat, but you submitted a design for that contest. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what you submitted and why? I still don't know if the contest is really over or not. Uh, they haven't really been good about announcing anything, but yeah, there's a chance you could still win it. You could still win it, Corey. So talk to, talk to us about what, what you were thinking there.
1: Um, so... I'll start by referencing, um, there's this designer, Bruce Mao, and he has an incomplete manifesto for growth. And it's just this crazy list of stuff, like kind of his own rules to live by when he's designing. And one of them is like, do not apply to contests. Just don't apply to competitions." <laughs> and so this competition, like, I don't, we still don't know if it's real, but. Um, yeah. I, I, there, there was a call that you could submit an entry for a cover design for the 20th anniversary edition. But when you read the rules, it's basically outlining every way that this might not come true. It's
0: like an onion article or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. It totally like, if you like onion articles, you would like this list of rules. I think I saved it if it's not still up like Matt, I think at one point you posted that the rules were down.
2: Well, they took it off the David Fosterwallace Books.com website, but you can still get it on ij 20tumblrcom
0: Maybe Chris Ayers just just trolled everybody so he could get
2: all this rad mm-hmm. art together around Infinite jest to sort of no, like no. <laughs> no, no, no. Little, Little Brown tweeted it out. I mean, it was it was an official thing. Yeah, but it was so know. obviously written by lawyers, right? I mean it's just legalese. <laughs> After page after page of legalese.
1: Well, and what it makes me think of is, I think didn't one of the editions, maybe the first one, they sent out these amazing postcards that I've been searching for. Oh yeah. Uh, maybe you guys know about them. It totally reminds me of that. You know, like this, like
2: marketing campaign for.
1: Yeah, yeah, like that. It's some some. It's a way to allure us all into buying more copies. I don't know. Um, but my my cover design, I started thinking about it as a way to continue conversations with people I met at the conference and to try to sum up, I'm really interested in um, signifiers or symbols. How do you bring together symbols in a way that represents either what's happening in the book or what's happening in your environment? And so I kept thinking about a flag and how... A flag could be bars on a window, you know, like how there'll be that cage on certain mm-hmm. windows.
0: Vertical um, bars.
1: Yeah, yeah, vertical bars, and
0: so you flip the U.S. flag to be vertical.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, and and I'm really curious to see what the what the cover will be. But I uh, adjacent to the idea of a cover, I'm also trying to figure out if there's a way that I could publish the Infinite Jest project. So. To have the um, color tabs like mass produced, so I'm I'm like thinking of the scene in End of the Tour where um, they go into the guest bedroom and they're mm-hmm. trying to like set up the room to sleep in, but there's like these stacks of books yeah. everywhere.
0: Just all yeah. the copies, yeah.
1: So I haven't I haven't written a letter yet, but I, I'd like to try to figure out if there would be a way to publish the project. So it'd be something you could walk through, or it could be dispersed.
0: It'd be funny if it'd be funny if you submitted the picture of the color tabs of Infinite Jest as the cover for the new Infinite Jest, like in the contest. Yeah. Oh, that would be cool. It'd be like this weird meta thing, like still has the same original cover, but then <laughs> all these tabs. That would be great.
1: Man, where were you a couple months ago?
2: I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I was in Canada. You were working we're so on your. So far removed from everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What I liked about yours was that cage imagery. And to me, that's one of the most important themes in the book. And the the idea of the cage is that it's something that you put on yourself and really put in your own brain. And there's this film that's referenced, you know, uh, James and Kendenza make several different films called Cage. Mm -hmm. But there's one that's referenced that's a real film called The Cage by Sidney Peterson. Hmm. And I found it the other day when I was at my Infinite Jess book club. And one of our book club members, a guy named Patrick, said, oh, that's on YouTube now. You should go and check it out. So we pulled it up on YouTube and started watching it right there. Mm. And it's really, really bizarre. Like, I cannot express to you how strange this film is for like 1947. Like it makes David Lynch's film seem like a Disney animation or something? It's like the weirdest parts of David Lynch films in black and white in 1947 and i mean he runs it backwards but it has actually a lot of similarities to infinite jest in it so i'm surprised there isn't a an academic paper on it already Hmm. but the the main guy actually has like a cage on his head so the metaphor is like even less subtle than (laughs) it is in in infinite jest but that's one reason why i really liked Corey's design but then this other day on Twitter, I posted this article that it seemed like a designer was posting his like winning design. And I was like, what the hell is it? It seemed like this guy was saying it was a done deal for him. But <laughs> he was just. I liked his design too, but I couldn't tell if was that legit or not. You know, His was
1: really smart. And a few designers, um, when they did their design, they actually printed out a jacket and like put it on a book. Um, hmm. And so, yeah, when you look at that, uh, description he's he is playing it like this is the cover and it but i think it's on his website and i saw it i actually told um chris about it because i realized that one wasn't on the um, on oh
0: yeah is it the
2: vhs cassette yeah one? yeah 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 saw that on the listserv so and chris what did chris say about it
1: uh he thought he contacted the person who designed it and said oh could we put that on uh you know in this collection and the designer was like yeah sure but i think he just said like copy and paste it from my website or like he didn't he mm. i don't know that he submitted an actual description to him or an image so i think that might be why it's mm. not up yet
2: hmm. that's interesting because i had this experience last year where I, we wanted to make new infinite chest shirts t-shirts and the design that I wanted to do was very similar to this. And I had mocked it up and the des- I couldn't get a designer to do exactly what I wanted. So I never ended up producing hmm. it. But I have like this mock-up that's like very similar to that cartridge where it looks wow. like it's the Infinite Jest cartridge in wow. um, an old, kind of an old VHS case. So I sh- and I actually think like mine could still be cool, but I'm not a designer, right? So it's just like a pretty primitive mock-up. Um.
1: No, that's all, Mine's Super primitive, too. Like I, I, I uh, I think I think you're a designer if you design something.
2: <laughs> that's all it takes. You no, know? <laughs> oh, that's, that's that's pretty that's pretty, generous. pretty yeah. profound, Corey.
1: <laughs> I, I'm a lot of people would argue otherwise. And I, I don't mean to offend any any designers by saying that. I, I think <laughs> it takes a lot of work.
0: You're cheapening their field. <laughs>
1: No, I'm not trying to do that. I'm <laughs> no, trying to course. just grow it. I'm just trying
2: to grow
0: it. You're, yeah, you're being generous, you know. Explore the space, guys.
2: Yeah, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty crappy designer. Then, well, the one, the one criticism of that f- um, image that a lot of people had, including me, that mine did have, was that there was no smiley face on it. Smiley face, yeah. Oh. At least if you're gonna make the damn cartridge with the envelope and everything, like, <laughs> put the smiley face. Yeah. on it. Like, did you read the book?
1: i know he might have missed that part i i was even trying to figure out if it would be the right handwriting i was like i'm not sure if that's the right handwriting Mm.
2: (laughs) so the other thing about the contest is that the rules stated that it would the sole judge of the winner would be the david foster wallace literary estate which is solely comprised of two people a lawyer named Alex Conner and Wallace's widow, Karen Green, who is also a working visual artist and has a really unique sense of style and design. As you can tell from her design from the Pale King or Bow Down, if you've read that book. Yeah. So I was curious to see, would she pick something that fits with her aesthetic mm-hmm. or something that, you know, is wildly different than her aesthetic, but maybe fits the book better. Mm. So to me, that was I'm very interested still to see what they're going to do with that 20th anniversary edition.
1: Same. Mm. Yeah, totally.
2: Did you guys both read Bow Down? Did you get a chance to check that out?
0: Yes.
1: I have not read it.
0: What'd you think of it,
2: Matt? I mean, it's very sad and it's very bleak and it's very depressing. Like, I don't know that it's. <laughs> I, I didn't find it to be a lot of hopeful. Like, that's not really the point of it. Like, it was.
0: Yeah, it's a memoir about someone's death.
2: Okay it's grief but she what's weird is she never names him in it you know it's just like my husband um but it's clearly about their relationship and his death and her after effects of that and i mean it's very to me it's it's very well written like it got a lot of attention because yeah. of how good of a writer that she is and she's
0: able yeah, to. it's fantastic It's so affecting there were parts where i just like uh, it just hit me really hard and I would start crying.
2: I mean, th- there's definitely parts of it that I think will be v- memorable for many years to come because she's able to craft so many like really memorable phrases and things. Yeah.
1: So do you guys have to read a book like that at specific times or or um, because it has that intensity or how does that work?
0: Like emotionally, like when am I ready to open this thing? Is that what you mean?
1: Yeah, like in that way or like, can you only read it in the morning or the afternoon <laughs> or the evening?
0: Mm. No, I think I would just read it the normal times that I would normally read. Okay. That wow. Was, that wasn't like a specific. Uh...
2: I mean, not for me. I mean, I only read, I pretty much only read at night or on the weekends because okay. I have a full-time job, a nine to five job and small kids. So I stay up really late reading and that can affect your experience of reading yeah. a book. I think- but I, I, re- I remember delaying reading that book only because it was like slightly expensive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I was like, "Damn, I don't have like forty bucks right now to spend on this one book." And I, you know, I did get it, but I was like, "Wow, this is the cover is so nice, though." It's like, really nice. It's...
1: Wow, that so that's like read that's like read time. Wow, yeah. so you buy the book. That's like there's an equivalent with clothing, like. How many times are you going to wear this? Like, how many days am I going to read this?
0: Oh, yeah. And then you're like, co- That's good. costing out, you know, every page is going to cost me this much to read. Uh huh. Is uh-huh. so it value yeah. for the money? Is that...
2: I don't know if it was that <laughs> cold with me. I mean, I have a very weird relationship with books, anyways. I feel like my identity is very tied up with what books I read and own. Mm-hmm. But it was very, it was also practical that, like, this book came out around the time of a bunch of other books that I wanted to read, and so I knew I would have to slot this into it. And there was a lot of excerpts of it online. So oh, yeah. um, I knew that it would be really emotional experience, though, and it was. I mean, mm-hmm. just because she's also kind of beating around the bush, like I say, by not naming him, and she kind of comes at it in this indirect way. It's a lot different. Like if you've ever read the Joan Didion memoirs. Yeah, I was just yeah. going to say that,
0: yeah. Yeah, a year of magical thinking about her husband dying.
2: I mean, that's a different experience, but she's also a great writer who's able to craft, you know, these really intimate experiences into, you know, really phenomenal prose. So I think Mm -hmm. they're both great. But Karen Green is first and foremost an artist and not a writer, but she's had, you know, a lot of success with that book, just sadly about her dead husband. Yeah.
0: And that actually seems to be kind of a theme here on the podcast, is us talking to U.S. visual artists. Yeah, so far, (laughs) so far as guests. So, thanks for carrying on that tradition, Corey. Oh,
1: sure. Thanks for inviting me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, Corey, I wanted to ask you. um, So, color was kind of the thing that hooked you initially about Infinite Jest, and like you know, sort of propelled you through it up to a certain point. Once, once that kind of, once the color thing. Um, did its work, what else hooked you about Infinite Jest and about Wallace's writing? And what made you want to reread it several times now?
1: I think the experiential quality of the book, it's very sensory to me or multisensory. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of moments where he's describing color or sound or... Um, someone's experience being in a space. I think this happens often with Hal where, um, it almost reminds me of the way someone would describe something that has synesthesia, um, or maybe even Asperger's where, where the experiences are so great that there's going to be an explosion, but it's just like a person walking through a room. Um, Mm. so I think that, is something that was really fascinating to me and probably goes back to the idea also of how do you write something how does one write something that is multisensory so you're just reading shapes on a page but you're activating multiple senses that's um, pretty fascinating to me like it isn't just cerebral then it's um, it's more than that I guess
0: and is that a quality that you haven't experienced with much other fiction? Was it unique to the way that he writes, do you think?
1: I think so, yeah, I i I find that like in small moments, but never with that um, intensity. And I think that's why I asked you guys about, is there a specific time that you're able to read intense writing? Like there were several times that I was reading that I wanted to keep reading Um, because I wanted to see what would happen, but because the story was so intense, I would like have to take a break from it, like based on what time of day it was. (laughs) So I might need your guys' help on that because I, I, maybe I'm just super affected by the reading and, and it might be something to go along with Matt, what you were noticing that I'm like so intently reading that it's, um, affecting me physically or something. (laughs) I don't know how to describe it beyond that.
2: Yeah. Well, that that's interesting too that you picked up on that. You mentioned kind of a quality of Asperger's, and after our last podcast, we got actual listener email yeah. from a guy named Rob who wrote in to say, you know, Wallace is often linked to these topics of so like depression, addiction, suicide. Has anyone talked about? autism in Wallace and that he seemed, you know, kind of a socially awkward person. And there's some stuff in the writing, even in a story called Little Expressionless Animals, where there is a high functioning autistic character. You know, what is the deal there? Is he was he actually Mm -hmm. on the spectrum? Was it just something that he picked up on and clued in? And, you know, I wrote back to Rob and said, well, you know, the own there is some Academic study of this topic. In fact, there was a guy named Matt Tresco, who wrote an article also for Consider David Foster Wallace about Wallace and autism. Which, if you haven't read, I think is really interesting.
1: Huh. Thanks.
2: And at our at our first conference, um, was it about? No, it was for the Paris conference that Dave was at, where Ralph Clare, who was at the first normal conference, he wrote a thing about. Wallace and autism, so it's yeah. actually like a couple of scholars have picked up on that Asperger's autism angle, and you know done some interesting research on it.
1: That makes me think of the the all that story um, because there's a reference in there that he's talking about this ex- like ecstatic experience of seeing light in the window um, to his mother and. Um, that he's just like can't handle um, how amazing the experience is. Um, here, I could. Do you guys mind if I just read it? I think I found it.
0: Please.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um. Please do.
1: All right. Sometimes the experience of the voices was ecstatic. Sometimes so much so it was almost too intense for me, as when you first bite into an apple or a confection that tastes so delicious and causes such a flood of oral juices that there is a moment of intense pain in your mouth and glands particularly in the late afternoons of spring and summer when the sunlight on sunny days achieved moments of imminence and became the color of beaten gold and was itself the light as if it were taste so delicious that it was almost too much to stand and i would lie on the pile of large pillows in our living room and roll back and forth in an agony of delight and tell my mother who always read on the couch that i felt so good and full of and full and ecstatic that I could hardly bear it, and I remember her pursing her lips, trying not to laugh, and saying in the driest possible voice that she found it hard to feel too much sympathy or concern for this problem, and was confident that I could survive this level of ecstasy, and that I probably didn't need to be rushed to the emergency room.
0: (laughs) That's so good.
2: (laughs) I love that. And Dave and I were talking about the story. I'm pretty sure that that story was written as part of The Pale King. And when we asked asked Michael Peach about this at a conference in Austin, his response was like, yeah, you're probably right. But I couldn't figure out which child Mm. that adult character was linked to. Which to me implies that he did figure out like which all the other children are actual adult characters in The Pale King. Whoa. Okay. And, you know, The Pale, the pale King has this kind of weird structure. And I assume that it has characters when they're grown up in, in the IRS. And then there's a lot of flashbacks to when they're children about kind of what motivates them to join the IRS or what turns them into these personalities that would be attracted to working for the IRS. And he just couldn't figure out where that slotted in and he left it out. Hmm. But to me, it's clear that it picks up on a lot of the same themes, like exactly what you're talking about. Uh, that if you maybe if we do another show about the Pale King or something, we can talk about that a bit more in depth. But to me, that does line up. You know, there's a pretty religious part of that story mm-hmm. about you know, proving the magic of religion and things.
0: <laughs> that portion that you just read, Corey, kind of almost reminds, like sounds like something that Mario in Candenza would say.
1: Oh my god! Describing
0: gosh. his experience of the world. You know, just yeah. so in awe of creation.
1: Yeah, that's a good association. I didn't even think of that.
2: Well, and he's one of the characters described as, you know, on the spectrum of being that's you true. Know, Asperger's or autistic or some way. You know, uh, I, many other things. Too. I know that Ralph Clare, that was part of his talk, was about Mario as well. So yeah, I think you're right.
1: Yeah, it's hard to tell. Then, like, I, I, I don't like to. I try not to theorize too much about what. I guess, I guess, I'm in between. Like, did he, did he learn a lot about autism and factor that into his writing, or was he speaking? You know, is it his voice actually speaking those descriptions? And I guess. Um, I don't get to know that, but
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah, I'm not sure about that either. Yeah.
0: So Corey, color is a, is a big part of, of what you're interested in, in literature. It's also a big part of your own personal art. And one, one of the cool things I've been seeing a lot of, uh, online is your optimism filter project. Oh yeah. Could you tell us a bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, I think that talking about, um, coping <laughs> I think that's mm-hmm. um, one of my favorite coping mechanisms. Um, I bring these large sheets of colorful plastic different places and um, some of them are like four feet by eight feet. So sort of if you think of buying a piece of plywood at Home Depot um, but instead of it being a piece of plywood it's this see-through um, piece of plastic. So it gets people's attention and they come and ask me, what is this? And my goal is to offer people a new view of a familiar place. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've found is it creates a way for people to be comfortable, to have a conversation. Uh, and not only the people that I'm talking to, but also for myself. Um, there's There'll be moments where I'm passing off this large piece of plastic to someone else and we're standing super close to each other but since there's this like colorful shield between us it's not as awkward so if you think about like when you're having a conversation you know how you'll gauge like someone might step back because you're standing too close or someone might step (laughs) closer once they want to hear you more um yeah and so uh i'm i'm super fascinated by the way um that it makes me a lot more comfortable in social situations. Um, and it also um, seems to get people's attention in a way that art that's like meticulously um, time-based or, you know, obviously um, has the hand of the artist that, that what's different about this is it's, it was made in a factory and people feel comfortable holding it um, and interacting with it. Um, so that, that's been like a big surprise part of it because it's, you know, it's sort of the opposite of the tabs in the book, um, where that's all about time, but it's similar. Like I started realizing that each of those tabs could be like one of the optimism filters just at a different (laughs) scale.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I was just thinking that it's like, you're just (laughs) taking one project and translating it into a larger, different
2: context. Yeah. I didn't. Well, and Corey brought a small one to the conference.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: I got to play with it. It was fun. (laughs) It was fun because I was like, it was about the size of like a pair of sunglasses. So I was like using it very literally as an optimism filter at the hotel bar.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And what's great is like, um, you know, if you look at whiskey in a glass, it kind of has a similar look to that amber plastic.
2: Yeah. 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 That's cool. So so Corey, twenty fifteen is almost over. What are you gonna be working on in twenty sixteen? Are you gonna keep working on the infinite chess read that you're you're through or what, what is your big plans for twenty sixteen?
1: I definitely want to continue the third book I'm working on. Um, I've been doing something where every hundred pages I'm having a photographer, his name's PD Reerick. Um, photograph the book so I'm trying to create this like stop animation of the pages in the book filling cool oh, um, that's cool. We're running into a little trouble where I don't know if it's going to be possible unless I might have to fill the book with the tabs and then actually take them out to create the animation oh, God. Um, so <laughs> sounds so, I don't know yeah so so that that something will happen with that. And I'll also keep working on the optimism filters. Um, and in doing the cover uh, competition for the Infinite Jest book, um, I really have this urge to design other things. And I'm like you, Matt, I'm not, I'm not a trained designer, but I just get ideas. And so um, I'll have to figure out where that goes.
0: Mm, that's cool. You're also a college university professor as well corey
1: well right now i'm teaching i i'm finally tenure track at eastern michigan university Mm -hmm. so i'm in one place um in Ypsilanti, michigan that's about um like 40 minutes from detroit
2: hey congrats on that job congrats that's awesome yeah thanks that's
1: awesome i have a lot to learn still but (laughs) i i'm glad that i'm doing it in one place
2: oh that's cool
0: um, do you ever find opportunity or room to talk about Wallace in your teaching, in your classroom?
1: Totally. Like I've, I've brought in my project, one, because I think um, a lot of artists don't realize that reading could be an art form um, mm. or that flagging something. So we talk about, you know, what what is art or what materials can you use that are outside of something you'd buy at an art supply store. Um, And I also have shown the book just to communicate with students that have trouble concentrating. And instead of just saying like, oh, yeah, I have that trouble, too. It's this visual uh, thing that shows like, "Okay, maybe there's there's something that can help you focus. This is what helped me. And so I, I haven't had students read excerpts yet, but I've thought that it would be interesting to do projects where excerpts of Wallace's writing would be inspiration for a project but then still figuring that out
0: oh that's cool how is how's the student response been to that
1: they're they're freaked out at first they're like wait what wait what and I I passed the book around sort of like I did at the conference and I think it I don't know if anyone said it directly but I think something triggers in their mind about like what is reading, and um, could it be something that's fun? And for an art student, um, unfortunately, a lot of times the idea of reading is thought of as like a distraction from getting to make art. Mm. Um, So I think it, my hope is that it sort of bridges those two and to help people realize like, oh, maybe reading could actually inspire an idea for a project instead of thinking of it as just a distraction or hmm. something that requires writing. Um, not in all cases,
0: but oh, cool. It's a form of research in a way. Yeah, yeah. totally. Hmm. So, uh, any final thoughts, Corey or Matt on Wallace art, etc.? cetera.
2: Uh, it's been great talking with you, Corey. I've really enjoyed being on the panel with you uh, this year at the conference. And I really look forward to seeing what you do, Throughout the rest of your career, I just like following your artwork and seeing what you come up with. I never would have come up with the idea that you did with the color tabs. I think that's just an incredible idea.
1: Thanks so much. I, I'm really happy that I got to talk with you guys. I, I, uh, I want to learn more from you. And, I, and now I have a, another book on my book list. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Corey, where can people find your work?
1: Um, I have a website, coreybaldoff.com. I have an Instagram, that's optimism underscore filters, um, and that's just focused on the optimism filters. And then uh, Twitter is where I post excerpts from Infinite Jest and, as well as having conversations with you guys.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, Corey, thank you so much for coming on The sh- on the Great Concavity. It's been super fun talking to you and hearing about your your artistic approach to reading infinite jest it's been really inspiring um our icon for the great concavity is by as always robin o'neill she was our guest last time on episode three so thanks again robin our intro outro song is instant disassembly by parquet courts and we'd also like to thank jordan tibbett for the show notes if you'd like to get in touch with us at the great concavity we are on twitter and instagram at concavity show is the handle And if you want to get more specifically in touch with us, our email is concavityshow at gmail.com.
1: Here we go. Oh, I see the shapes. Okay, I'm in. I'm recording. (laughs)